How many of you have um, seen this video or heard of the controversy a little bit or maybe read this book, Love Wins? One more time? You've at least heard of the controversy or something like that? Well, anyway, this, this thing, it set off quite a firestorm. Uh, it really did. And rather than, the book that came out, I think it was like in May, rather than, um, than react to it before I had a chance to read the book, I decided, you know what, we're going to put this on our calendar to talk about it. I want to make sure I have a chance to really read the thing, cover to cover myself, and, uh, and take a look before we, before we get into some of the, the issues that it raises. And, and this is not going to be a bash bell um, four weeks. Uh, what I want to do is I want to stick to the, the questions. I think it's important for us to, the questions and the answers, to really stick, stick to those. Um, one of the things I want to say about, I want to say a couple things about questions, actually, before we dive in. Um, one of the things I want to say about questions is questions aren't necessarily bad. In fact, questions can be great. In fact, Jesus himself, he asked a lot of questions. And sometimes the questions that Jesus asked, they were purposely provocative. Some of the questions that Jesus asked, they were, they were the kind of questions that just got at the heart of things. And then there's other times where Jesus was asked questions, and what did he respond with? He responded with a, a question. And Jesus used questions so effectively that we're still talking about Jesus' questions today, 2,000 years later, halfway around the world. So, can questions be good? Absolutely. Can questions be God-honoring? Absolutely. Can questions be not God-honoring? Yep. And I think all of us know that, um, that questions, you can answer a question in a non-God-honoring way. We all know that, so we're not going to spend really much time on that. You can, you can give false information on purpose, and that can be bad. You can give misleading answers. You can do all that kind of stuff. We all know that you can answer questions the wrong way. But did you know that you can also ask questions in an irresponsible way? Some of the questions we ask can be asked in an irresponsible way. Some of the questions that we actually ask, the question themselves, can receive a rebuke from God. Um, here's, here's an example of, um, of, of two questions. Let me give you a little context around these questions. These two questions both appear in the same book of the Bible, Luke. Both these questions do. Both of these questions come as a response to an angel visiting these two. They happen in two separate instances. So both in the book of Luke, both from a, in response to an angel's proclamation, and it gets even more specific. The angel told both of these people in separate situations, you're going to have a baby. And it's even more specific than that because in both of those situations, they shouldn't have been able to have a baby. So, very specific situation, very similar for each of these. And the first one, we have a response that comes from a guy named Zechariah. Does anyone know who he was the father of? He was the father of John the Baptist. Very good. So, the first question that we're going to look, that's up there on the screen, that comes as a response from Zechariah to this question from the angel. He says, how shall I know this? The second question comes from Mary. She was the mother of Jesus. And her answer, or her question looks very similar, doesn't it? Her question is, how will this be? So you have a very similar circumstance that, that, um, that generated these questions. You have a very similar question from each. But in the first case, Zechariah got a rebuke. In fact, angels say, you're not going to be able to speak now until your baby's born. And Mary didn't get any rebuke like that. So questions, boy, questions are powerful. 
And because questions are powerful, we need to be careful what questions we ask, how we ask them, and certainly how we answer them. Well, this, we're starting a new series today, a new series where we are going to be asking a lot of questions. And some of them we won't even be able to answer. And not only are we going to be asking a lot of questions, we're going to try to answer a lot of tough questions, including some of the ones from the video. And my hope and my prayer for this series is that as we ask questions, we're asking them responsibly. And as we answer questions, we're asking, answering them in a way that is faithful, fully faithful to what the Bible says. So before we go any further, would you pray with me to that end? Let's do that. Father, we, we do. We, we want to be faithful here. For the next four weeks, Father, well, and not just the next four weeks, but always, Father, we want, we want to be responsible. We want to be responsible. We want to have minds that aren't so closed that we, like, that, that we see examples of the Bible where people, they met you and they couldn't receive your word from you. Lord, we don't want to do that. We don't want to miss what you're saying. Lord, we don't want to, to just um, rest on things that we may have been taught that aren't right. But Father, more, more than anything, we, we want to know your truth. And so Lord, help us not to also neglect truth that we've been taught. Help us instead, Lord, we pray your spirit would open our minds and our hearts that we may fully, fully um, hear from you and, and that which you want to reveal, that it, it would be clear, and that which um, is beyond us, that we would have the humility to accept that. Lord, I also um, specifically pray, uh, as we get into a topic like this, I mean, I say this not for your benefit, but for those who are listening in, Father, we, um, we know there's certain topics um, that, that the enemy doesn't want us to hear, and this is one of them. So Lord, we pray against any distractions or anything like that that would, um, that would uh, hinder, hinder, um, us receiving what you want to say. Not just hearing it, but receiving what you want to say. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, um, l- let me start this series that's going to have all kinds of questions with this question. If you, um, if you would be so kind, if you want to pull out your green uh, insert from your bulletin, I would encourage you to write this down, um, this, this question that's, that I think is a question behind a question behind a question. Why do questions about the afterlife even exist? Why do they even exist? You know, if, if this was a room where everybody in this room um, had put their faith in Jesus Christ, we wouldn't have to ask this question. But because we, we almost always have people who are coming and, and they're, they're just exploring Christianity, I, I want to I briefly touch on this question. Um, if you're coming this morning from an atheist perspective or an agnostic perspective, we're thrilled that you're here and we hope that you find that we're, we don't want to present things in a condescending way. Um, in fact, as a person who was very, very skeptical of Christianity for a period of my life, this is the kind of question that that would come to my mind. You know, why why are people even asking? Because, you know, when when I was in my my, skeptic period of my life, I I would ask questions like this. Why, why Why would you even have questions about the afterlife? Everyone knows what happens when you die. We've seen skeletons. We've been to funerals. When you die, you die. You know, nobody in this room, I don't think, I don't think any of us have ever seen Someone come back from the dead. Have you ever seen someone that's been dead, dead? The Princess, Princess Bride reference there. He's just mostly dead. No, he's dead, dead. Um, <laughs> and the, like, not, not your heart stop for like a minute or two. I mean, I don't think there's anybody in this room, right? None of us have seen someone who was dead, like three days dead, you know, come back to life, right? Anybody? No. We, so we, so why, why in our collective consciousness, as, as people who's, who humanity dates back thousands and thousands of years, why is it after... Thousands and thousands of years, millions and millions of people seeing people die, you know, seeing their skeletons. Why are we asking this question? 
Why? And, 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 and the question even gets, gets, gets more interesting when you start factoring in how, how similar the beliefs are that were, that, were, that were come to independently. Why is it that millions and millions and millions of people throughout history, all over the world, came to believe that there is an afterlife for the first place, but why did so many of them believe that there's a judgment that waits? Why did so many of them independently reach that conclusion? And it gets even more specific. Why did so many of these cultures independently come to the conclusion that not only is there a judgment, but blood sacrifice should be in the equation somewhere? How do you just arrive on that on your own? And it gets even more specific. Why not only are there beliefs of an afterlife, why not only do so many people believe there was a judgment, why not only do we believe that blood sacrifice should play in, how in the world did they come to the belief that, that a sacrifice of an innocent can atone for the, uh, the um, sins of the guilty? And this isn't just Christianity that came to that conclusion. Why all around the world were people sacrificing innocent people on behalf of the guilty? How do you come to that on your own? You know, and one of the reasons why these kind of questions stretched me as a skeptic is science doesn't answer that. You have to be subjective. That, hard science cannot answer that question. You can come up with an idea that's grounded in naturalism, at least. You can, you can come up and say, well, maybe there was some advantage you know, in the evolutionary scheme of things, maybe there's some evolutionary advantage to believing this, but you at least have to admit if you, you go there that that's subjective. That's not hard science. Anytime you're, you're being subjective, that's not hard science. It's not repeatable. It's not all those things. So if, since we're already in subjective, subjectivity, if we're already there, one of the things I'd consider you, consider, um, I'd ask you to consider, would be, could it be possible that, humans throughout history in all these different cultures all around the world that humans have come to believe in an afterlife because there is an afterlife. Here's a quote by a guy named C.S. Lewis, brilliant scholar, author. Um, he, He says this. He says, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Could it be that, that we ask eternal questions because we're eternal beings? And that one of the reasons why it's common to humanity is that this is common to humanity. We're, we're eternal beings. Now, um, as, as Christians, uh, you know, we claim to put our trust in Christ. That we claim to say, you know what, we, we want to be followers of him. We want to be faithful to his words. And, and so one of the things that we're going to hold true as Christians, those of us who are, is, um, is this, and there's a place to write this in your notes too. Um, Jesus' teachings about the afterlife carry extra weight. Jesus' teachings about the afterlife carry extra weight. You know, and why is that for us? Well, those of us who believe in Christ, we believe he actually died and he actually rose again. And so if you're going to look for information about the afterlife, why not... Look to somebody who actually died and rose again. It's interesting. I um I've been reading up in some some history and and uh, and it was interesting. There's a there's a great book. Um, I'm gonna 
re- actually read a section from it here in a second. Um, this guy's written, he's a believer who wrote this book, but one of the things I really appreciate about him is he pulls in all kinds of sources. Um, he doesn't just pull in the Christian sources, he pulls in Jewish sources. He pulls in um, Roman sources. He pulls in all these sources as he uh, goes to try to explain um, all these things surrounding Jesus. And one of the things that, that he points out is he said, it's, it's one thing if you just believe what your parents taught you, or you just grew up in a Christian environment and you just absorbed those beliefs. That's one thing. What happened with Jesus is totally different than that. Because nobody in Jesus' day was saying the things that Jesus said. At least this whole idea that you put your faith in me, you're going to have everlasting life. Nobody, it, no, there's no historical record anywhere of anybody dying, coming back to life in the lifetime of those people who knew him. This was, this was un unprecedented. So it's one thing to just say, well, I believe this because my parents did, or I believe this because my culture does. It's totally different for Jesus to step into the world, which is a documented historical fact. It's a different thing for, for, for people to, to realize Jesus steps into the world, and he convinced the people of that day that he died and rose again. That's totally different. To convince the people of that day that you died and you rose again, and that he did. Um, the, there's a number of, of, of quotes. One of the Ro- Roman officials that this guy quotes, um, and he puts all the sources and stuff in the book, he, he, uh, he notes a, a Roman official who, um, who referenced Christians who met regularly and sang hymns, quote, to Christ as if to a God. So as early as the turn of the, when the first century turned to the second, there was already, we can find documents of these Roman officials saying, these Christians... They don't just believe he was a teacher. They believe he was God. And they're singing hymns like that. But it gets even more specific. Another Roman official, they found a document from this guy. And he, um, he wrote that these Christians received their name from, quote, Christ, who had been executed by the sentence of Pilate. So this isn't some other Christ. This is the Christ that the Bible's talking about. Now, the one I want to read to you comes from a guy named Josephus. Now, what's interesting about Josephus is that Josephus should be prejudiced against Christians. Josephus was a Pharisee. How well did Jesus get along with the Pharisees? Then after that, he became a um, kind of a, 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 a freedom fighter for the Jews. And then after that, when the Romans won this battle, the, the, the war, he, he became a Roman historian. So so this guy, before I read this, you need to know, he, he should be prejudiced against Jesus of Nazareth. Listen to this. Direct quote, you know, translated into English, but a direct quote from Josephus. About this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man. For he was one who wrought surprising feats and was a teacher of, of such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Messiah. Josephus' words. When Pilate, upon hearing him accused by men of the highest standing among us, had condemned him to be crucified, those who had in the first place come to love him did not give up their affection for him. On the third day, he appeared to them restored to life. For the prophets of God had prophesied these and countless other marvelous things about him. And the tribe of the Christians, so-called after him, has still to this day not disappeared. So 
you know, why do Christians put their faith in Jesus? Why have they been doing it since the time of Jesus? For a lot of reasons, miraculous signs, all these kind of things. But one of them is because they believe Jesus rose from the dead. And if you're going to ask questions about the afterlife, why not go to somebody who rose from the dead? So what we're going to try to do here today as we introduce this new series is we're going to take a look at some of the things that Jesus said about eternal life. And we're not going to be able to get into a lot of the nuances today, but over the next couple of weeks we will. So there'll be a lot of unanswered questions you know, at the end of today. There'll be a lot of unanswered questions at the end of this week or the end of this series. But, but my hope is that you're, we're going to get some clarity regarding what Jesus did and didn't say. Because we're all going to have our ideas about the afterlife, even if we deny it. We all have our ideas about the afterlife, if we're honest. But what did Jesus say? What did he did and didn't say? So the first, pat, the first um, quote from Jesus that I want us to look at is not one we're going to study with a lot of detail, but I want you to notice something about the language that was used to quote Jesus. This is a familiar passage to probably almost everyone in this room. It says this, For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believed in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, in parentheses, I, I put two Greek words. The first is the Greek word that was used. The second is a word that could have been used but wasn't. Now, we don't know, when, Je- when these words came from Jesus' lips, we don't know for sure what language was used. Jesus, his native tongue was probably Aramaic, most likely. Jesus also could probably read, at least read Hebrew, because the, the scriptures were in Hebrew. Also in that area, um, because of the, the Greek influence, you almost had to know some Greek to be able to do business and do life. So we don't know for sure if when these words came out of Jesus' mouth, if it was in Aramaic, if it was in Hebrew, if it was in Greek. But we do know this. One of his disciples, John, who was inspired by the Holy Spirit, these are the words he chose. When, when, when John, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was carefully articulating what Jesus said, what his master said, these are the words he chose. And when you get to that eternal part, he could have chose the second word. The second word is a Greek word which could mean eternal, but it also could mean a period of time. That's not the word he chose. The word he chose is one that means eternal. So did Jesus speak about an eternal afterlife? Yes. Jesus did. And as you're going to see, consistently Jesus talks about an eternal afterlife. Now another thing I want to notice, note here too is this afterlife is not granted on the basis of us doing all the right things. It's not what's, what so many other religions have come to the conclusion. It's you've got to get the ritual right. You've got to get the incantation, the right words. You have to have the right actions or you've got to be good enough. If you're good enough, then you get in. That's what, that's what the other religions came to. Jesus doesn't say that at all. He says what? He says it's faith in me. It's not about being good enough. It's not about getting the right prayer. It's do you have faith in me, the person, myself? Those that do have eternal life. Okay, so I put that one up on the screen, a very common passage. We're also going to look now into more, more depth into another passage that's common to most of us. We've looked at this before, more from the implications regarding compassion um, and caring for our world. But now let's look at it from this eternal perspective. All right? So if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to open up because we're going to spend some time in this one. Matthew 25. We're going to start with verse 31. 
Matthew 25, verse 31. Now, if you don't have a Bible at home, we would love for you to go home with one today. We've got one free that you can take. There's a stack of Bibles there on that table. Please take one on your, on your way out. All right, this is Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 31. We'll just read through 33, and we'll pause and comment on this a little bit. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will, say, he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. All right, let's, let's talk about this. Now, this is another one of these passages where if you're reading from a 21st century English context, you're, you're going to miss something that a lot of the original hearers would not have missed. And that is this idea of the Son of Man. That would have been a trigger phase, a trigger phrase, especially in this context for people who knew their Old Testament. Now, Matthew is a guy that we, we spent uh, the weeks leading up to Easter, those of you who weren't here, we spent the weeks leading up to Easter digging into Matthew. One of the things we found out about Matthew is Matthew was very, very concerned or very, very attentive to trying to say, here's Jesus and here is what it said in the Old Testament. And look at how Jesus' life matches up what was said. And here's what Jesus said. Look what, how what he said fulfills what was said then. So that's Matthew. Matthew's always trying to do this. And he does it by using that phrase, son of man. Because the use of son of man in this context with all of this, there's going to be you know, all the nations gathered and all this kind of stuff. That would have triggered Daniel chapter 7, starting with verse 13 in people's minds. Listen to this and look, listen how similar it is. This is a, a prophecy that Daniel had. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So, again, we, it's easy for us just to read through this. They would have been thinking, okay, son of man. The son of man is the one who the ancient of days gave all this authority and judgment and all that type of thing. Well, let's continue to read, and, and I, I want to see if you notice a real subtle shift in language here. As we continue uh, with Matthew 25, let's just do verse 34. It says this, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. He starts off, Jesus talking about himself, starts off using the phrase son of man. What does it switch to? Right here in verse, he's no longer talking about the son of man. He's talking to the, talking about the king. He's referring to himself as king. Now, one of the reasons that's so significant is that Jewish rabbis had a lot of stock metaphors. They had certain things where if they use this word, this is what the people understood. And we still do that today, right? Political cartoons. Political cartoons. You see an elephant. What, do you, what does that represent? Republicans. You see a donkey. What does that represent? Democrats. You know what king represented when you use that language? It represented God. So now not only is he one to whom God has bestowed authority, He's referring to himself as God. That's the Christ 
that the Christians bow to, this, this, this unparalleled authority that he ascribes to himself to be able to say these things, to be able to pronounce these, these things. Okay, um, continuing on with our, with our reading. Um, let's go on with 35, 35 to 40. All right, so then he, he separates these, and to the sheep he says this, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see that you were sick or in prison and visit you? Then the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Now, there's all kinds of things that we can and have said about that passage, but here's the thing I want to draw your attention to right now, and that is this. Were the sheep doing this so that they could get in good with the king? You know, were the sheep thinking, Oh, wow, we want to this is really the king that we're doing this for, so let's get it right. No. Sheep were just doing what sheep do. You see that? The sheep were just doing what sheep do. So keep that in your mind as we continue. All right, then comes hard words, Matthew 25. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me. You cursed into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me. I was naked, you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer to them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. Now, there I did the thing with the parentheses again. Jesus is consistent. And when he talks about the afterlife, as this time Matthew records a direct quote from Jesus, Matthew could have used that word that said, you know, this could be for a period of time. Matthew chose the word through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that means eternal, eternal. So we look at this and, and, and we you know, conclude, you can see why Christians have come to the conclusion of, well, is there an afterlife? Yes. Is it eternal? Yeah. And we get that because that's what, what Jesus said. And so where, you know, where do Christians get the idea that there's a judgment that waits us? From Jesus. Now, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at some of the things that are rich and textured and nuanced, but the thing that we hopefully are making clear here today is Jesus spoke about eternal things, and he spoke in some very, very strong, strong ways about them. Um, and here's something I encourage you to write down in your, um, in your notes, because this is, it's so crucial we must avoid fashioning ideas about heaven and hell that conform to our expectations. That's the danger, isn't it? That we have ideas about the way it should be, and if God is 
just, then it should be like this. And if God is loving, then it should be like this. And if, and if that happens with you, if, that's just natural, right? Because if we understand justice to be a certain way, then we would want God to be a God of justice. If we understand love a certain way, we would want God to be a God of love. And, but what we have to be careful is assuming that we understand justice the way we think we understand justice or love the way we think we understand love. And one of the reasons I, I uh, can speak so strongly on this is I just got back from the Rockies. And when you stand in the Rocky Mountains and you see the majesty and when you look upon this creation, you realize, what do I know about anything? What do I know about anything except that which God reveals to me? And even my best thoughts fall short of God's best thoughts. My best assumptions fall short of what God knows. He's God and we aren't. And he wants to reveal mysteries to us. That's one of the reasons Jesus is saying these words. God's trying to reveal things. But what we have to be careful to do is not to say, okay, here's what I believe, and then suddenly we're finding support for what we believe in the Bible because you can twist the Bible to say what you want it to say. Are we coming from that perspective of here's how it's got to be, oh, here's some support for it, or are we coming from, God, you're going to have to reveal to me because I'm limited. You know, it's so easy for us when we think about an eternal judgment. How could a just God have an eternal judgment? How could a a limited period of life be used to assess what should happen after that life? You know, those of us who understand justice, that's logical. Absolutely. But here's what I want to challenge all of us on. What do we know about justice? What do we really know about justice? Because absolute justice requires absolute knowledge of all the facts, all the motivations, all the circumstances. Do you know that? There's a trial that's been going on (laughs) that's concluded, kind of. Um, Casey and Anthony, that murder trial down in Florida. I haven't been following it, but you can't get away from it. So many people have conclusions about what should or shouldn't have happened. You know, are you in the per- perfect place to judge? Do we have to make judgments as people? Absolutely. Absolutely. So I'm not saying throw away courts because we can't judge. No, we have to. My point is this. My point is we're limited. We're limited. We have to make our judgment based on the evidence that's presented to us. And is all the evidence ever presented to us? No. So we're making judgments based on the evidence we have. God has all the evidence. We don't. In fact, when we make judgments in our culture, we have to make judgments based on, at least in the courts, we have to make judgments based on the laws we didn't even make. And that we have disagreements of even how to interpret. So what should be the punishment? What's the law? Well, we have to do that based on things humans have done. God has the absolute standard of right and wrong. He's the only one that does. So God has the only absolute standard, and God is the only one that can righteously say, here's, here's, here's what that standard means. Here's the implications of that standard. So, again, it's easy for us to say, here's what God should do if he's just. I would 
ask you to consider, do, do you know what justice really is? And the same thing holds true with love, doesn't it? You know, most of us, we, we have an idea of what love is, but do we fully love like God loves? No, and why can I say that with authority? Because have you ever died for your enemy? Your enemies. No, none of us have. We're all in this room, right? God has. So until you've died for your enemies, what do you know about love? Do, do, you, see, do you see the point that I'm trying to make here? Um, the, the point is, if, if we're going to come to God, it needs to be with humility. If we're going to be faithful to this. Because if we come with our preconceived notions, and we even do, even in our best humility, we've got our biases but as best we can, with the help of the Holy Spirit, do we come to God saying, God, teach me? Or do we come saying, God, if I'm going to trust you, then you need to fit my questions. And you need to answer my questions the way I want you to answer my questions. Well, before we close, let's look quickly at two other passages from the same place. And here's one of the beautiful things about God. This invitation he gives. Because there's all the things that we think God should be doing differently. Don't lose track of what he does say with clarity. What he does is this amazing invitation he gives to humanity. Don't miss out because of all the things we don't understand. Don't, don't miss out on what he makes clear. And that's this. He says, he says on his last night with his disciples, he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I, or would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I'm going. All right, freeze on this for a second, because I want to point out some things. Um, there's an older translation of the Bible called the King James Version, which is basically pretty good, but in this passage they translate many rooms as mansions. That's not a good translation. The, a better translation is either this, many rooms or dwelling places. That's a better translation. And not just because literally it's a better translation, but also what, what's trying to be conveyed here. That what's trying to be conveyed is you don't, um, you don't, God isn't preparing like this mansion so you can serve as some kind of earthly you know, king or whatever, um, that that's what we're talking about. It's, the imagery is more of, in my father's house, there's a place for you. In my father's house, there's a spot prepared for you, for those who believe in me. And what's interesting about this language is that Jesus is, these words are coming forth from Jesus' mouth in Jerusalem area. Well, in, in Jerusalem most of the houses are small. What's the Father's house that is very, very big? It's the temple in Jerusalem. And this same John who records these words of Jesus, later God gives him a revelation that we get as the book of Revelation. And in that book, we have this new Jerusalem coming down as Jesus comes back. I mean, this all fits together amazingly so. So when that new Jerusalem comes or when you cross from this life into the next, is there a room being prepared for you? Do you know, as it says here, you know where I'm going. Do you know where you're going? Well, Thomas wasn't sure, and so here's how this passage continues. Thomas says to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? 
And Jesus says, well, you go down the street and you take a left when you get to the... No, he doesn't doesn't give a location. And Jesus doesn't say, well, if you do this and you do this and you do this. Or he doesn't say, if you pray this specific prayer or if you give this much money to this cause. He doesn't say that. He, He doesn't point them to the thing. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that is completely consistent with what Jesus taught. He, he taught, come to me. And there are some times, he looked people in the eye and said, you, and I'm not saying this to you, Cameron, but he says, to, to you, you need to sell everything you have, give it to the poor and follow me. That's what he says to that guy. To the criminal hanging on the cross, he said, today you're going to be with me in paradise. Not that you're a criminal or anything like that. Um, this is what the hard part about looking people in the eye when you give these things. So, so that's why it's completely consistent for Jesus sometimes to point to one person and say, here's what you need to do because it's all about him. Are you listening to the shepherd? Are you doing what the shepherd says? The sheep were just doing what sheep do. They were being obedient to the shepherd. Is that where you are? Are you following the shepherd? Are you, are you putting your full trust in him? Or are you saying, no, this is... I'm holding back here. I'm holding back here. Well, today, what a perfect day. You know, as we celebrate communion, for us to say, today, God, it's all yours. Every part of it. Anything I've been holding back on, God, it's yours. I'll need your help. I'll need the help of others to let go of this thing. But today, it's all yours. Everything. I'm going to put my trust in you. Not in a prayer I prayed at camp. Not in the fact that I was baptized. As great as those things are. I'm going to put my full faith in you. Not because I'm generous with my money, which isn't really mine, it's yours. Not because I'm a nice person. Not because I didn't go see Saw 12 in 3D, you know. I'm putting my faith in you. Is that where you're at today? Well, worship band, why don't you come on up and let's prepare our hearts um, for this time. Let's make this a holy time. Let's make this a holy time. And again, there are all kinds of questions that still remain and there will be at the end of this series, but hopefully over the next couple weeks, you're going to be able to dig into some of these. What about a person who's never heard about God? All these kind of things. We'll, We'll dig into those. Today, set those aside. Today, focus you and God. Is Are you fully putting your faith in him? Or are you putting your faith in your job or whatever else? All right? Let's, uh, let's prepare ourselves. Let's pray these prayers together out loud. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, to whom all hearts and minds are open and all desires are known, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit that we may more perfectly love you and more worthily magnify your holy name. We confess that we are sinners and cannot save ourselves We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. We are not worthy for these gifts which we are about to receive, but say the word and we will be made clean. Please pray with me, Father. I mean, I'm, not only are my 
judgments not just, not only is my heart not truly loving, but Father, you know my frailties with, with words and not clearly expressing what you want to express. So we pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit will speak and intercede for us with, with, with words that, that humans can't articulate. Lord, speak to each and every heart in this room. Lord, let this be a course correction now, whether it's a 180 or whether it's just a couple degrees to the right or left. Lord, may we all come forth from this place with a new understanding of what you're asking for us and who you are. Holy Spirit, open our minds, open our hearts, and speak to us during this time. Make it holy. As we come forward, Father, we pray that that we wouldn't just be doing a ritual. We pray that, Father, we would really somehow wonderfully, mysteriously be partaking in your body and your blood, and may it strengthen us and, and, and become part of us in a fresh way this morning. So, Lord, we remember the price that you paid to make this possible. And Father, we humbly now, out of, out of response, we come and, and offer ourselves as living sacrifices back to you, knowing that you're a good God who will lead us in ways that are noble, who will lead us in ways that, 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 that bring honor where honor is due, in ways that will make a positive difference in our world. So Lord, help us to trust that the things that we lay at the altar are things that, that are better left there. And Lord, now as, as one last act of solidarity, we, 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 sing, we pray this prayer that you taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.